So we are continuing in the study of the Gospel of John. And we are going to start a new chapter, John chapter 11. And uh, we're going to look at really kind of the pinnacle of the earthly life of Jesus. But it's really the middle of the book, but it's really there's only one more week left of Jesus' earthly life. So over half the book done, but half left, and there's only one week of his life left. And so we're going to start kind of in the middle to the and we're going to look at the last, light, last week of Jesus' life over the next few months as we go through the rest of the Gospel of John. And so uh, we're in John 11. It's the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And I've titled the message this morning, Seeing Things the Way God Does. Seeing Things the Way God Does. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, I, I thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to, to open your word and to continue studying your word. God, it is your word that speaks life to us. It is your word that corrects us and changes us. It is your word that is truth. And Lord, we submit to it here this morning. And I, God, I pray that you would speak to us out of your word. God, Lord, show us what it is you want us to hear. And God, I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So every time I, I wake up in the morning, I put on my glasses. When I go to bed, I, I don't wear my glasses, or I, when I used to wear contacts, I would take off my contacts. When I would put my contacts on or put my glasses on, I go from fuzzy to clear, right? So when, if you wear glasses, when you put your glasses on, that's what takes place. Um, whenever, whenever you get a pair of binoculars and you put those binoculars up to your eyes, most of the time you've got to do what to, to get it into focus? You've got to, got to turn the dial in the middle of the binoculars because it's not clear yet. You don't see clearly yet or... Or whenever something that uh, you have that gets muddy, gets dirt and mud on it, it's, it's, it's not clear and sling, or clean, and so you've got to wash it and get the residue off so you can, you can see clearly or see it clearly. An archaeologist, what do they do with their little brushes? Right? They, they, they go into a place and they're, and they're brushing the dust off to, to reveal what's under the surface, right? So, so this is the heart of what we want to look at this morning is that we want to see things the way Jesus sees things. And in this text in John 11, it, it's a lengthy chapter of the story, the account of the resurrection of Lazarus. So there's a little bit of groundwork we, we're going to lay here in these first 16 verses. We're not going to get to the miracle here. We're only going to cover the first 16 verses of the account. And next week we're going to go a little deeper and then we'll see the, the, the raising of Lazarus later. And, and we're just going to let this story speak to us and let God change us through this story. But uh, up to this point in the Gospel of John, the, the, we've seen six miracles that, that John highlights. There's many more miracles that Jesus has done. But John, in his Gospel account, he's, he's really highlighted seven. And this is the seventh we're going to look at. What, do you guys remember some of the other miracles that are highlighted in John? What's the first one? Water into wine. That's the first one. Turning water into wine. John chapter 2. In John 4, you have the healing of the official son. In John 5, you have the healing of the invalid man at the pool. Uh, in uh, John chapter 6, you have the multiplying of the loaves and fish. In John 6, you have the walk, Jesus walking on water. And then in John 9, you have the healing of the man born blind, which we saw a couple chapters earlier. Today, we're going to look at the beginning, the introduction to the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, Jesus raised other, two other people from the dead, but 
it was different than what's going to happen here. In those two accounts, uh, uh, they, he, he raised people from the dead that had just died. As we're going to see, Jesus waits a little bit longer, and, and Lazarus is going to be dead for four days before Jesus goes and raises him from the dead. And this is the capstone of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is his last public miracle. There'll be another miracle where he's going to uh, uh, restore an ear that's been cut off of a, of a, of a, of a soldier, uh, Malchus, whose ear was cut off by Peter. And he's going to restore that, but that's in the dark. That's when they're arresting Jesus. This is in the light. This is in the, in the public. So this is Jesus' last public ministry. It's his greatest display of his deity. That he has power over death and life. And, and ultimately the greatest sign, as Pastor Dominic did a great job last week talking about, is his greatest sign of demonstrating his power over life and death is that he raised himself from the dead. Right? And so, so, so this is what we're going to see here. We're going to look at this account, the first 16 verses of this account. So, so let's get some little background here. Where, where are we here? So uh, the Feast of Dedication would have taken place uh, around uh, John chapter 10. So we're sometime between December or April uh, in, in, in this account because April, uh, which is what we're going to see, the month of April, is the beginning of the Feast of Passover, and that's what we're going to see at the beginning of chapter 12. So we're somewhere between December and April in this account. This is the timing. Well, where are we when it comes to the miracle of the raising of Lazarus? Well, the setting is Bethany. Two miles from Jerusalem. Now, there's another Bethany. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is not that Bethany where John the Baptist was. This is the Bethany in Jerusalem, uh, near, near Jerusalem. And so it's the east side of the Mount of Olives where, where Lazarus is. Uh, notice the, the, the end of chapter 10 that we looked at last week. It says, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. So this is where Jesus is. Lazarus is in Jerusalem, Judea, Bethany, the, the Judea region near Jerusalem where Jesus was. Jesus left, and Lazarus gets sick. Okay, so Jesus went away from where he was, where he was in John 8, where he was in John 9, where he was in John 10. He leaves the Jerusalem area, and he's in the Judea, Bethany area, right? And so, so this is... Where, we, where he is, this is the setting. Now, what about the characters of this story, these first 16 verses? Who are the characters? Well, let's look. John 11, we'll see the first two verses of John 11. It says, now there was a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So here are the characters, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Brothers, uh, brother and two sisters, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It's interesting that John takes note that it's Mary who anointed Jesus' feet. John chapter 12, which we're going to get to next, is that account. So what this tells us is, is that what we know is, is that the other Gospels have already been written when John had written his. So he's taking into account that those that are going to read his gospel already know about Mary anointing Jesus' feet. He's just referencing, hey, this is the Mary that you already know about that anointed Jesus' feet. And we're going to look at that story next week. And that kicks off the final week of Jesus' life. That's, that's here in about a month we'll get to John chapter 12. And so, so what we see here is that what we know about Mary and Martha and Lazarus is that they're adult children uh, they're living on their own. We know that uh, scholars tell us that, 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 that Jesus would have been close to them. 
He would have had a close friendship type relationship with them. Uh, maybe uh, some of you even believe that maybe he stayed at their house. He took care of them. He, they, they, they fed him when he would go on his journeys uh, in that area. And so there's a close relationship. And you're going to see that as we go through this account and multiple times. He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And we're going to see that. So, so there was a relationship, a friendship he had with them. He cared for them. But in these 16 verses, the stage is going to be set for the miracle. So this is the introduction to the miracle. These 16 verses, they introduce the problem. The problem is the sickness of Lazarus that will ultimately end in death. And and that's the problem is he's sick and then he dies. So this introduces a problem. And these verses, these 16 verses, here's the way that we're going to frame it here this morning. These 16 verses give us an opportunity to compare the way Jesus sees things, seeing things the way Jesus sees things versus the way that we as his disciples see things and the way that the disciples of that day saw things. You remember in John chapter 8 and 9, but in particular in chapter 10, we, we compared Jesus to the Pharisees. And in John 10, Jesus compared himself, I should say, to the Pharisees. Jesus compared himself and called them, called them thieves and robbers. And he called them false shepherds. And he was the true shepherd. He was the genuine shepherd. Well, in this text, we're going to make the comparison. We're going to look at the text. And I think it just jumps out at me as I was studying it. We see a clear comparison with how Jesus evaluates life, how he evaluates sickness, how he evaluates death, how he evaluates timing of things, and how we evaluate them. It's going to stand out as we go through it. So the main point of this message, if you could have one main point, it would be this, is that Jesus sees and evaluates earthly realities differently than his disciples. It's going to be overtly clear as we go through it. He He sees and evaluates earthly experiences that we have and that he has, that he had, differently than we do. And we know that, right? Jesus is different than us, and we're different than Jesus. We're not Jesus. We are like him when he walked the earth and that he was human and we are human. And he can sympathize with our weaknesses, and we'll see this in this account. But we're going to go to some some things that I think are going to cause us to think deeply about how God sees things, how Christ sees things. So what do we see? Kind of three thoughts here, three perspectives of Jesus that is different, that we see things differently than he does. So the first one is this. Jesus had a different perspective about earthly suffering. So we saw the characters in the first two verses of John 11, and so now we see Jesus had a different perspective about earthly suffering, and we begin to see this. Look at verse 3 of John 11. Look back to the text. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. They sent word to him from where they are, where Lazarus is around Jerusalem in Bethany, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Lord, he whom you love is ill. So so, so get get, get the picture, get the stage here. They're presenting, they're getting word. It would take them about a day's journey to get from Bethany near Jerusalem to where Jesus currently is. And so they get word sent through messengers, and the message gets to Jesus. And what is the message? The message is, Lord, the one you love is ill. And, and, and when, I, when I read that, it just really jumped out at me. This is a little sidebar, little part of my message here, just for us to think about this. What a profound thing to think about, that these ladies are able to say to Jesus, have a message sent to him, and to tell him, the one you loved is ill. So the first question I thought of 
was how did they know that Jesus loved him? If they're boldly declaring, Jesus, the one you love is ill, then they must have had knowledge that he loved him. Well, how did they know that he loved him? Well, it's obvious. It's because Jesus demonstrated his love. He demonstrated his love. And, and that got me to thinking about what must it have been like to walk the earth with Jesus and have a physical impact of his love in your life in a tangible, physical way. What a powerful picture to think about that that we feel the love of Christ through the gospel as we read his word and as we interact with brothers and sisters in Christ who have his love and his spirit in us and we love each other. We are the hands and feet of Christ, but to have the actual hands of Christ touch you when you're going through trials and difficulties and put his hand on your shoulder and say it's going to be okay, right? To have Jesus love you, Lord, the one you love, we know you love him because you showed your love. That just, just really sent me for a loop in my study just thinking about what it must have been like. Another thing to think about is they are, in essence, they're praying to Jesus. What do they call him? Lord. They send a message to Jesus. What do we do when we pray? We're sending messages to Jesus. We're saying, Lord, Lord. I need help. Lord, I'm struggling here. Lord, I have this sickness. Lord, I have this issue. Lord, so it's prayer. In essence, this is a prayer, a petition that is going from these ladies to a messenger to Christ. I just want to say this. Notice what they didn't say when they got the message to Jesus. It didn't sound like this. Lord, you know that we cooked you supper. And you know that you laid on that comfortable bed and that soft pillow. And you know that we took care of you. And you know we've done so much for you. Lord, don't forget that. And by the way, the one you love is is sick. But don't forget all the things that we've done. And here's what I'll say about prayer. This is such a a little, this is is bonus. This is bonus for you, bonus points here. We should never petition God in prayer based upon what we have done for him but solely because of the love and character of Christ. When we go to God in prayer, you don't have to line up your list of all the things you've done and all the great accomplishments that you've made for him and say, Lord, see, I'm a good Christian. I got it all. I've checked all my boxes. I'm a good Christian. So I I know for sure you're going to want to help me out. But notice what they said. Lord, we know you love him. Isn't that so good? We could end today and be done, but there's so much more to bring out. I just love this. Lord, your friend, the one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. So what is Jesus' response to this news? And this is where we have a little pivot, a little shift to how Jesus sees things differently. Notice verse 4. We're continuing in the story. Look back to John 11, verse 4, the first half of verse 4. But, and you know when you get to B-U-T, But in the Bible, you know that there's a change. Something is different. Jesus doesn't see things the same way. But when Jesus heard it, but when Jesus heard it, so we know we're we're moving towards a, a, a revelation here from Scripture that Jesus is not evaluating the situation the same as the sisters are. Look at the second half of verse 4. What's his response? But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. If you're like me, and you know the end of the story, or I should say the middle of the story, I thought, 
What does Jesus mean? It doesn't lead to death. Lazarus died. Did he not? Later in this account, the end of this message, we're going to see Jesus plainly says, guys, listen, Lazarus is dead. So, so, so what does Jesus mean? This illness does not lead to death because he did die. But it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Here's what I think it means. Here's, here's the point, and I think we have some other references in, in John that will kind of confirm this. I think it's, here's what it means. The death of Lazarus was not going to be like any other death that was the result of sickness. People get sick, and sometimes sickness leads to death. The death of Lazarus was not going to be like any other death that was the result of sickness. This death was because... God let Lazarus die so that the Son of God would be glorified through it. Yeah, I, I just noticed, I happened to see a face as I was preaching and I saw eyebrows go up. That's what I, that's, that's what I do when I read that, when I think about that. This, death doesn't lead to, this, this sickness doesn't lead to death, but it is so that the Son of God can be glorified through it. That makes me raise my eyebrows. Wow, God does think differently than we do, doesn't he? Jesus is evaluating this situation completely different than these ladies. These ladies are coming and they're seeing a sickness. And, and why, why do you think they are going to Jesus? Because they know he can do something and they know that he loves Lazarus. And he's sitting back, he's saying, listen, listen. This sickness is for another purpose. It's for another purpose and we know he's going to die. And so Jesus is saying that God is going to let, the Father is going to let Lazarus die so that the Son of God can be glorified. And we've seen this in other places. You remember John 9, when we walk through John 9, there's another challenging section to our brain that, that shows us that Jesus, the Lord, sees things differently than us. You remember the man born blind, the disciples asked Jesus, whose fault is it that this man was born blind? Was it? His sin, was it his parents' sin? And Jesus answered, John 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born this way, born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that. You see the same language? But that, or so that, but that. The works of God might be displayed in him. And we often, we, we, we often and here's our challenge, and this is why this challenges us when we see that this, this, this death that the Lord is allowing to happen is so that Christ can be glorified through it, or that the man born blind was born blind so that God can be glorified through it. We hit a roadblock, and here's why I think we hit a roadblock. We touched a little bit on this in John 9 when we went through it, but it's, just, it's here in the text. We're going to hit it again. Listen, we often only want to serve a God who always rescues us from our trials and our suffering. That's the God that we want. It's the God that I want. I, I, I'm not different than you. I, I would love a God that would always rescue me from my trials and my suffering, that, that, that never allows me to go through pain. That's why I don't like pain. Do you like pain? My knee. I have a, have a sleeve on, on, on my knee right now. It's a compression sleeve. I didn't want to wear my brace today. I fractured my, my fibula bone, the left of my knee. I, I, don't, I don't want to have pain. I, I don't want to go through uh, the aging process, right? I don't, I don't want to experience those things. I want a God that would always rescue me from those things. And, and here's the truth. This is why people will accumulate preachers who will tell them these kind of things, that God will always rescue you from pain and trials and suffering. 
Preachers who will ignore what Scripture reveals. It's kind of, here's what I'd call it. It's, it's the everyday of Friday version of Christianity. How many of you love Friday? I mean, Friday's the best day of the week, right? Especially if you're working a Monday through Friday job because Saturday's coming and I get to relax and drink sweet tea and watch golf. It's great. Every day of Friday version of Christianity. It's every day of Friday. Amen. But here's the thing is that people want to create their own God according to their own desires, and it's not God at all. It's not the God of the Bible. It's the God of their own creation, a God that always rescues, a God that always doesn't allow us to suffer. Jesus is showing something different here. And these ladies are, are responding normally and naturally. This is how we should respond. We should go to God with our prayers based upon his love and his character. And we should petition God when we suffer and we're going through trials. But there are times when we walk through things that it's helpful for us to see things the way Jesus sees things. That this temporary life that we live in is not the most important reality. We're just passing through, right? And so what, what we create in the Christian world today is we create a version of Christianity that is centered on our earthly experience and not on heaven. And not on eternal realities. It's centered on temporary realities. How can I get the promotion? How can I get the job? How can I get the blessings? How can I have favor and blessings and goodness? And those are all good and we want all of that. But if the purpose of this life is only the promotions and the blessings and the jobs and the retirement accounts and all those temporary things, if that's the purpose of life, then we don't actually believe the Bible, that there is a heaven, that there is a hell, and there is eternal realities that are greater than our temporary. You guys tracking with me? People want to create their own God according to their own desires. I'll, I'll worship this God who always makes sense to me, who always makes sense to me. So, so, so can we agree? Can we agree that God simply knows more than us? Amen? And that he knows what's best for us. Can we agree? Now, it, it, we don't always understand it. Sometimes we question. Sometimes we question his authority. Sometimes we question his plan. We question him. We question him. We, we, we question his authority, his power, his sovereignty. We, God, God I, don't, I don't agree. I don't understand. You're not making sense to me. It's kind of like this. Let me illustrate it for you. This is kind of what it's like. There's a rare genetic mutation that takes place in a child's brain. It takes effect typically around two years old. All children. And then it usually persists until the age of 18. In some extreme cases, the defect continues until the mid-20s. The brain defect is what some might call chronic inability to believe authority figures. Acronym is CBAF. Have any people suffering with CBAF here today? Any young people? Well, the good news is that for most children, this defect is cured when bill payments become their responsibility. Right? Do you, you see that? Right? Not trusting authority figures, not trusting my parents. I don't think they believe. I don't think they have my best interest at heart when, they, when they're punishing me like that, when they're taking this from me, when they're not allowing this, when they are allowing this. I, I, I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't understand. And all of a sudden, the brain defect goes away whenever they have to pay their own bills. And I think in a similar way, this is how we struggle. 
we struggle to believe and to trust God's ways. You remember the story of Joseph? There's one story you can look at other than Job. That's a pretty good one to look at that, that is just wild. Joseph tells his dream, sold into slavery. He gets sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers wanted to kill him. Reuben stood up and said, no, let's not kill him. He gets sold into slavery, and for years he is betrayed and in prison and falsely accused, and, and you just see this journey, and it culminates in him being second in charge over all of Egypt. And listen, when the brothers who sold him into slavery are in front of him in Genesis, 40, in Genesis 45, listen to Joseph's perspective. Genesis 45, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there have yet five years which there will be neither plowing nor harvest and God sent me, second affirmation, God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you, brothers, who sent me, but God. Wow, what a perspective. I think Joseph had eyes to see the way that God sees things. So what will help us today? We need to transition here. I'm going to be preaching a lot longer than I anticipated. Um, what will help us here today? I believe we need a new understanding of the love of God. Because we often see and we think the love of God would not allow us to walk through difficulties. If he loved us, and how many times you might hear that, if God loved me, he wouldn't. If God loved me, he wouldn't. We need a new understanding. I love what Warren Wearsby says about this section in John 11. Listen to his words. God's love for his own is not a pampering love. It's not a, but it is a perfecting love. The fact that he loves us and we love him is no guarantee that we will be sheltered from the problems and pains of life. After all, the father loves his son. And yet the father permitted his beloved son to drink the cup of sorrow and experience the shame and pain of the cross. We must never think that love and suffering are incompatible. Certainly they unite in Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, the one you love is sick. And Jesus says, I know, I know. I have a plan for that sickness. So how else did Jesus see things differently than his disciples? Let's quickly go to the second perspective. Well, the second perspective is that Jesus had a different perspective about earthly timing. So he sees earthly suffering differently, but he sees earthly timing differently. Look back to the story. Now, verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Lord, Lazarus is sick. So when he heard, he stayed two days longer. I want you to think about that. When Jesus heard about his dear friend's sickness, which is a day's journey away, he stays two days longer. What an amazing response. you know, you'd think Jesus was his enemy and not somebody that he loved. And this certainly would have been the typical, it's not been the typical response for those disciples and not for us as well. They certainly would have expected him. They expected him to come right away, and we'll see that later on in this account. They expected him to come sooner. So here's an alternate version. This is not biblical. This is the, the, the BBV, the Ben Bufkin version. Uh, here's an alternate version based upon our natural perspective of timing. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he quickly jumped into the fastest vehicle he could find and drove 85 miles an hour in a 70-mile-per-hour zone. No, sorry, he drove 70 miles an hour in a 70-mile-per-hour zone to arrive as quickly as possible because he loved Lazarus so dearly. Isn't that true? 
Right? That, that's what we think. But Jesus stayed two days longer. If you get news that someone you love dearly is sick, and this context is sickness that is serious, as we see here, what are you going to do? You're going to get in the car. You're going to get in the plane. You're going to go, if it's local, you're going to get to the hospital as quickly as possible. You're going to run. You're going to get there. Hurry. You're in a hurry. And, and this is not what we see with Jesus. Jesus didn't have a human perspective concerning time and a timetable. He was on a different timetable altogether. He was not ordering his life by an earthly perspective of time. We see this throughout the Gospels. Just a couple places in the Gospel of John. Look at John 2. When the wine ran out, the mother Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My what? My hour has not yet come. Mary, mother, you, you, you think my time has come. But look, I'm on a different timetable here. My hour has not yet come. It's not my time. John 7, his brothers, the feast is coming in Jerusalem, one of the feast days, and, and, and it's where there's going to be hundreds of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem, and they want Jesus to go to the feast, and they want him to do miracles publicly. And in essence, they're saying, you need to demonstrate yourself publicly so that people will believe in you, so they'll follow you, Jesus. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. So, so that Jesus sees time differently, doesn't he? How do we respond when we see time? I'm going to borrow one verse from next week's passage. This is how we see time. Look at John eleven twenty one. Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here. You see how she sees it differently? I heard a preacher last night. I was listening to a message on John 11 last night. He called Mary and Martha the sassy sisters. He said, I could preach it from the, the perspective of Jesus, of Lazarus, of the sisters, and if it was the sisters, I'd title it the sassy sisters. If you had been here, Jesus, right? You didn't do it according to my timetable. Here's another scripture that I think reflects how we see God and his timing. Psalm 143, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. Answer me quickly. Answer me quickly, O Lord. Why? Because my spirit fails. My spirit fails. And so how many of you, we often question his timing. We question his timing. And, and, and certainly these sisters would have questioned his timing. And they did. We see it. They questioned his timing. If he had been here, he would have been healed. We're in a hurry. We don't like to wait. When we believe we know what needs to happen, we want it done when? Yesterday. Yesterday. That's when we want it done. Lord. The one you love is sick. Come now. We have a problem and we know you're the answer. Isn't that how you feel sometimes? God, I know what you need to do and I know that you're the answer. You need to come do it now. Why are you waiting? So here's a question for you. Has the Lord been waiting two days longer in your situation? Some of you feel that way? The Lord's been waiting two days longer in your situation and two days has turned into two years? Two decades? Well, here's what we know about God. God is never in a hurry, but he is what? Always on time. He's never in a hurry, but he's always on time. So where does our impatience come from? Just like Mary and Martha are impatient, it comes from the fact that we only have a ground-level perspective. We only can see right here. This is all we can see. The Lord has a different perspective. A way to illustrate that is there's a theologian named Dr. Kenneth Meyer, and he tells this story about how he was flying into a major city. 
And he's flying in. I think it was Los Angeles. He's flying in. And as he's right above, he can see the interstate. He can see a traffic jam. And there's just cars forever in this traffic jam. And there's people that are out of the car. And they're walking in circles around the car. And he's imagining the conversations of what's going on. And he's imagining they're frustrated and they're impatient. And when is this going to end? And is help ever going to come? Is it ever going to come? Is help ever going to get here? And he said, oh, if they could have just seen from my perspective. Because what he saw, not only was a traffic jam, but way off in the distance was the blue lights. They were making their way. They were coming. It wasn't when they wanted it, because they wanted it yesterday. They didn't want to be stuck in the traffic jam. How many of you, you don't want to be stuck in life, right? You don't want to have stuff that, stuck, that, that, stuff that stops you and sticks you and hinders you and slows you down. But again, we, we see suffering and trials differently than Christ does. And when he's slow from our perspective, we can be like those people on the interstate. When's the blue lights going to get here? So we see from ground level, just like Mary and Martha. And we need the divine perspective. So how does this perspective of Jesus in John 11 press onto our hearts today? This view of his perspective, how he sees Suffering different, but he sees timing differently. So here's some questions that you have to ask yourself. What have you been waiting on? What have you been waiting on? If I sit here and ask you, and you thought about it, you probably have a list of things you've been waiting on. I've been waiting on my husband to pursue the Lord. I've been waiting on my wife. I've been waiting on promotion. I've been waiting I was told, but it's not here. But I've been waiting. What have you been waiting on? What prayers have you been praying? I mean, the, the, the sisters are praying. They're sending a petition to the Lord, and he's waiting two days. What have you been praying for? What situation is still unresolved? What, what loved one is still not surrendered to Christ? What situation is still unresolved? So what should our response be? This is what rose up in my heart. I I remembered Proverbs 3. Here's how we respond in the waiting room of life. How do we respond in the waiting room of of life? When we're waiting on Jesus, it's been two days. He's still not here. Where are you, Jesus? So here's, here's how we respond. Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't have that ground level perspective where all you see is a car in front of you and the car in front of you and the car in front of you and the car in front of you. And that's all you see. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and say, Lord, I acknowledge you and I trust you. And he will make your path straight. He'll clear out the traffic jam. It may not be when you want it. It may not be the way that you want it. And you may be frustrated you're in it in the first place. But if you will trust him with all of your heart and acknowledge him in all of your ways, He may not be there when we want him, but he's always on time. Amen? The general principle is this. Christ delayed coming to his faithful, loving disciples in order to strengthen their love and their faith. Amen? I think the waiting room of life, that's what it's there for, is to strengthen our faith, to build our faith. Lord, Lord, the one you love is sick. And sometimes you pray that for yourself. Lord, the one you love, I know you love me, but I'm sick, I'm struggling. And he says to us here today, hang on, hang on. I'm not going to stay 
right here. I'm, I'm going to stay here for a, a, a little while, but don't worry. I have a plan. Hang on. Trust me with all of your heart. So we have one more perspective from Jesus in this opening text of John 11. We've seen that he sees suffering differently. He sees timing differently. What's the next perspective? Look back to the text, John 11, 7 through 8. Then after this, all right, so, so after this, he stays two days longer. After this, he says to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? So what's the perspective here that we're going to see? Jesus, thirdly, lived with confidence in his father's plan. He saw suffering differently, timing differently, and he lived with confidence in his father's plan. His disciples are saying, Judea? You want to go back to Jerusalem? He says, all right, guys, I'm done waiting. It's time. Let's go back to Judea, to Jerusalem. And, and they're like, Lord, have you quickly forgotten that when you were there, people tried to kill you? And you know for certain that as his disciples, they're feeling the threat on their life as well. Don't you realize, Jesus, that they tried to stone you? Do you remember? Look, look at John 8. What did Jesus say in John 8? Before Abraham was, I am. He made the bold I am declaration. John 8, 59. So the Pharisees picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself. John 10, last chapter we were in, the Jews picked up stones again. To stone him, this is what these disciples are trying to remind Jesus of. Rabbi, did you forget? Did you forget? Let's help you out here. Those are not good people to go back to. They were just trying to kill us. Jesus says, it's time to go. What is his response to their fear, to their worry? Look, let's go back to the text. Let's continue the story, the, 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 a story here. What's his response? Verse 9. Jesus answered these fearful disciples. He says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So, so you got this parabolic type story of walking in the light and then walking in the night and stumbling. If you walk in the day, you don't stumble. You walk in the night, you stumble what, what, what's Jesus saying to his disciples' fear when they say, don't go back to Jerusalem area because they're trying to kill you there? What is his answer telling them? He's telling them this. Walking the day signifies the time frame of Jesus' earthly ministry. Walking in the night signifies the time when his earthly ministry is going to end. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is what he said to Mary, is what he said to his brothers. Look, guys, my time's not yet there's nothing those stone throwers can do to me. He's confident, what? In his father's plan. I'm walking in the daytime. I'm walking in obedience to the father's will. And the time is not yet. So guys, let's go. I know you're fearful. I know you don't understand. I know you're confused. And you're thinking ever-present danger in Jerusalem. But we're walking in the light, guys. I'm walking in the light of obedience. I'm obeying my Father. So here's what is saying. the Lord is saying. The Lord calmed their fears by reminding them that he was on the Father's schedule and walking in the Father's will and that nothing could come his way that was not a part of his Father's plan. I think another thing Jesus is expressing here, he's expressing that walking in obedience to God's will brings confidence. 
Walking in obedience to God's will brings confidence. And he had confidence. You remember what Jesus said in John 6, I've come to not do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he lived in that confidence and that assurity that if he was walking in the Father's will, he had no reason to fear for his life. But these guys didn't see that perspective. They didn't see that the same way that Jesus did. 1 John chapter 1, look at, look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, Christ walked in the light of obedience. It reminded me as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of Proverbs 28.1. You guys have heard this. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are what? As bold as a lion. Guys, I have no reason to fear. We can be bold as a lion here because we are walking in the light. And I think for some of us here today, maybe, maybe, maybe that's not our life. Maybe we can't be bold as a lion because we have a guilty conscience. We're not walking in the light of obedience, so we don't have confidence in God's plan. We don't have confidence in the future because we don't have a sense of a clean, clear conscience before the Lord that Christ had because he was obeying his Father's will. He was walking in obedience. He was walking in the light. And thinking about this reminded me of what we have all witnessed. If you've been paying attention to the Alex Murdoch trial, now I'm not going to publicly talk about his guilt or innocence, but a jury of his peers declared he was guilty and and I can go over all of that. But here's what I will say. I, I, I listened to most of his testimony when he was on the stand. And here's what you, you pick up really quickly. Alec Murdoch lived in continual darkness. He lived continually in lies. He could have no confidence about his future because he lived constantly with a guilty conscience. The, the wicked flee when no one pursues but the righteous are as bold as a lion. He had to make up lies for his lies and make up more lies for those lies because he lived constantly in the dark, hiding, 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 hiding. Jesus is making the example. Guys, listen, we don't have to be fearful. I'm not worried about their stones. I'm walking in obedience to Christ, to, to, excuse me, to the Father's will. Amen? Amen. So here, here, here's, here's how we can apply this. May we have a settled confidence in God's plan for our life. And listen, and may we live in obedience to the light of God's word and trust God with the future we cannot see. May we trust God with the future we cannot see. Walk in the light, live in obedience to the light that God has revealed to us. So what have we seen so far as we conclude here? We see that Jesus sees earthly suffering different than Mary and Martha did, different than we do. He sees suffering differently. We see that Jesus has a different perspective about earthly timing. He hears bad news about people he loves, and sometimes he may just say, I'm going to push the pause button for a little bit because I've got a plan. Right? And Jesus lived with the confidence in his Father's will, in his Father's plan. He lived with the confidence. He wasn't fearful for the future because he walked in the light of obedience to his Father. So as we conclude, there's some verses we didn't cover. I think this is a, a powerful conclusion here, right? So these are the perspectives of Jesus. Well, let, let, let's, let's end looking at a character. You guys remember Thomas? What do you call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Well, let, let's, let's redeem Thomas a little bit here today. Can we redeem Thomas? Because I think Thomas is a little bit greater than his doubt. Aren't you glad that you can be a little bit greater than your worst day? I think we see a little bit of Thomas's best day right here. Look back to the text. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. 
Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Guys, he's dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. What does that mean? It means he says, I'm glad I wasn't there because I would have healed him. But I'm glad I wasn't because you're about to see something amazing and it's going to build your faith so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So get the picture. The disciples were begging him to stay. Don't go back there. They're going to kill you. And we're in danger too. That's, that's what you feel there. So Thomas, old doubter in the end, right? So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples. So, so just picture it. They're talking to Jesus about not going. I, I can just picture it in my mind. He turns to his fellow disciples that are all right there. And he says, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, some of you may say that's a little bit of pessimism. And I think a little bit, right? You can kind of, you can kind of sense that. All right, let's go. We're going to die. We tried to warn him. He didn't listen. So we're all going to go. We're going to get our heads chopped off. Let's go. But you know what I, I think I see here is I, I see courage. Whether he's pessimist or not, it's a, it's a courageous pessimism. It's, it's yeah, we may die. But we're going, guys. He looks at his fellow disciples and says, come on, let's go. He, we can't convince the guy. He's got a vision and a plan. And we don't understand it. We've been confused for three years, over three years. We don't know what's happening. But guys, let's go. We're with him. We're with him, even to the death. Let's go so we can die with him. So, so I would say this as we conclude. Yes, we want to be like Jesus. And we want to see suffering the way that he does. And we want, to see, we, we want to see timing the way that he does. We must wait and be patient on his timing. And, and we want to live in the light of, the, of obedience and trust God's plan. But, but let's be like Thomas, too. Let's be like Thomas, too. And Thomas was in a position where he didn't understand. He didn't get it. And I think some of us here today, this is where you are. You don't understand why you're walking through your, what you're walking through. You don't understand why God has waited as long as he has waited. And you are just like Thomas. And you're sitting there wondering and confused, but let's be like Thomas. And so here's what I'll say. I'm going to look at all of my fellow disciples here today. And look at all of you here today. No matter what season of life you're in, no matter what waiting room you're in, and we're all waiting on something. No matter where you are, I want to be like Thomas today. I want to look at all of you today, and I want to say, let us go. Let's go. Let's die with him. Let's go. Let's keep moving. Let's not stop. Let's not give up because we don't get what we want. Let's not give up because the God we created in our own image isn't doing what we want him to do. Let's let, let, let's. Let's kill that false idol and let's follow the one true God whose plan we can trust, whose will is always good. Let's go. Amen. Let's follow Christ. We're all in with Christ. Amen. We're all in. Or said another way, Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained, this or I'm already perfect I'm not there yet but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own I'm his disciple brothers I don't consider that I've made it my own but one thing I do 
forgetting what lies behind. There's stones that are coming for our head, Lord. But I'm going to forget what lies behind. Forgetting all the confusion and the hurt and the pain and the struggle. I'm forgetting what lies behind. I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go with Christ today.